Part One, Chapter Nine of the Story of the Barbary Corsairs by Stanley Lane Poole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James K. White. Chapter Nine, The Sea Flight Off Preveza, fifteen thirty-seven. When Barbarossa returned to Constantinople, Tunis was forgotten, and Minorca alone called to mind. Instead of the title of Beglerbeg of Algiers the sultan saluted him as kapudan pasha or high admiral of the ottoman fleets there was work to be done in the adriatic and none was fitter to do it than the great corsair kir ed din had acquired an added influence at stamboul since the execution of the grand vizier ibrahim and he used it in exactly the opposite direction ibrahim a dalmatian by birth had always striven to maintain friendly relations with venice his native state and for more than thirty years there had been peace between the republic and the port barbarossa on the contrary longed to pit his galleys against the most famous of the maritime nations of the middle ages and to make the crescent as supreme in the waters of the adriatic as it was in the aegean francis i was careful to support this policy out of his jealousy of the empire the venetians anxious to keep on good terms with the sultan and to hold a neutral position between francis and charles v found themselves gradually committed to a war and by their own fault their commanders in the adriatic and at candia were unable to resist the temptation of chasing ottoman merchantmen canale the proveditore of candia caught a noted corsair the young moor of alexander as his victims called him sunk or captured his galleys killed his janissaries and severely wounded the young moor himself and all this in turkish waters on turkish subjects and in time of peace of course when the too gallant proveditore came to his senses and perceived his folly he patched the young moor's wounds and sent him tenderly back to algiers but the sultan's ire was already roused and when venetian galleys actually gave chase to a ship that carried a turkish ambassador no apologies that the signoria offered could wipe out the affront war was inevitable and venice hastily made common cause with the pope and the emperor against the formidable host which now advanced upon the adriatic before this some stirring actions had been fought off the coasts of greece doria sallying forth from messina had met the governor of gallipoli off paxos and had fought him before daybreak standing erect on the poop conspicuous in his cramoisy doublet the tall figure of the old admiral was seen for an hour and a half directing the conflict sword in hand an easy mark for sharpshooters as a wound in the knee reminded him after a severe struggle the twelve galleys of the enemy were captured and carried in triumph to messina barbarossa was sorely wanted now and in may fifteen thirty seven he sailed with one hundred and thirty-five galleys to avenge the insult for a whole month he laid waste the apulian coast like a pestilence and carried off ten thousand slaves while doria lay helpless with a far inferior force in messina roads the turks were boasting that they might soon set up a pope of their own when the war with venice broke out and they were called off from their devastation of italy by the sultan's command to besiege corfu the ionian islands were always a bone of contention between the turks and their neighbors and a war with venice naturally began with an attack upon corfu the senate had shut its eyes as long as possible to the 
destination of the huge armaments which had left constantinople in the spring tunis or perhaps naples was said to be their object but now they were undeceived and on the twenty fifth of august captain pasha barbarossa landed twenty five thousand men and thirty cannon under lutfi pasha three miles from the castle of corfu four days later the grand vizier ayas with twenty five thousand more and a brilliant staff joined the first comers and the akinji or light troops spread fire and sword around a fifty-pounder fired nineteen shots in three days but only five struck the fortress the turks fired too high and many of their missiles fell harmlessly into the sea beyond in spite of storm and rain the grand vizier would not desist from making the round of the trenches by night suleiman offered liberal terms of capitulation but the besieged sent back his messenger with never an answer alejandro tron worked the big guns of the castle with terrible precision two galleys were quickly sunk four men were killed in the trenches by a single shot a new and alarming experience in those early days of gunnery four times the fort of st angelo was attacked in vain winter was approaching and the sultan determined to raise the siege in vain barbarossa remonstrated a thousand such castles were not worth the life of one of his brave men said the sultan and on the seventeenth of september the troops began to re-embark then began a scene of devastation such as the isles of greece have too often witnessed not from turks only but from genoese and venetians who also came to the archipelago for their oarsmen but never perhaps on so vast a scale butrinto was burnt paxos conquered and then barbarossa carried fire and sword throughout the adriatic and the archipelago with seventy galleys and thirty galleots he raged among the islands most of which belonged to noble families of venice the venieri grispi pisani chirini syra skiros agina paros naxos tenos and other venetian possessions were overwhelmed and thousands of their people carried off to pull a turkish oar naxos contributed five thousand dollars as her first year's tribute Aegina furnished six thousand slaves many trophies did barbarossa bring home to stambol whose riches certainly did his own and the sultan's if not the general coffer fill four hundred thousand pieces of gold a thousand girls and fifteen hundred boys were useful resources when he returned to rub his countenance against the royal stirrup two hundred boys in scarlet bearing gold and silver bowls thirty more laden with purses two hundred with rolls of fine cloth such was the present with which the high admiral approached the sultan's presence suleiman's genius was at that time bent upon three distinct efforts he was carrying on a campaign in moldavia his suez fleet a novelty in ottoman history was invading the indian ocean with no very tangible result it is true unless a trophy of indian ears and noses may count save the conquest of aden on the return voyage but still a notable exploit and disturbing to the portuguese in gujarat and his high admiral was planning the destruction of the maritime power of venice in the summer of fifteen thirty eight barbarossa put off to sea and soon had one hundred and fifty sail under his command he began by collecting rowers and tribute from the islands twenty-five of which had now been transferred from the venetian 
to the Turkish allegiance, and then laid waste eighty villages in Candia. Here news was brought that the united fleet of the Emperor, Venice, and the Pope was cruising in the Adriatic, and the Captain Pasha hastened to meet it. The pick of the corsairs was with him. Round his flagship were ranged the galleys of Dragut, Murad Reis, Sinan, Sali Reis, and twenty Egyptian vessels and others to the numbers of one hundred and twenty-two ships of war. The advance guard sighted part of the enemy off Preveza, a Turkish fortress opposite the promontory of Arta, or Actium, where Antony suffered his memorable defeat. The Christian strength was really overwhelming. Eighty Venetian, thirty-six papal, and thirty Spanish galleys, together with fifty sailing galleons, made up a formidable total of nearly two hundred ships of war, and they carried scarcely less than sixty thousand men and two thousand five hundred guns. Doria was in chief command, and Capello and Gramani led the Venetian and Roman contingents. Barbarossa had fortunately received but an imperfect report of the enemy's strength, and so boldly pursued his northerly course up the Adriatic. When he reached Preveza, the combined fleets had gone on to Corfu, and he was able to enter unopposed the spacious Gulf of Arta, where all the navies of the world might safely anchor and defy pursuit. On September 25th, the Allied fleets appeared off the entrance to the Gulf, and then for the first time Barbarossa realized his immense good fortune in being the first in the bay. Outnumbered as he was, a fight in the open sea might have ended in the total destruction of his navy, but secure in an ample harbor, on a friendly coast, behind a bar which the heavier vessels of the enemy could not cross, he could wait his opportunity and take the foe at a disadvantage. The danger was that Doria might disembark his guns and attack from the shores of the gulf, and to meet this risk, some of the Turkish captains insisted on landing their men and trying to erect earthworks for their protection. But the fire from the Christian ships soon stopped this maneuver. Barbarossa had never expected Doria to hazard a landing, and he was right. The old admiral of Charles V was not likely to expose his ships to the risk of a sally from the Turks just when he had deprived them of the men and guns that could alone defend them. The two fleets watched each other warily. Doria and Barbarossa had at last come face to face for a great battle. But strange as it may seem, neither cared to begin. Barbarossa was conscious of serious numerical inferiority. Doria was anxious for the safety of his fifty big sailing vessels, on the heavy artillery of which he most relied, but which a contrary wind might drive to destruction on the hostile coast. As it was, his guide-ship on the extreme left had but a fathom of water under her keel. Each felt keenly the weighty responsibility of his position, and even the sense that now at last the decisive day of their long rivalry had come could not stir them from their policy of prudence. Moreover, it was no longer a question of the prowess of hot-blooded youth. Doria and Barbarossa and Capello were all men of nearly seventy years and Doria was certainly not the man he once was. Politics had spoilt him. So the two great admirals waited and eyed each other's strength. Will Barbarossa come out? Or must Doria risk the passage of the bar and force his way into the encounter? Neither event happened. But on the morning of the 27th, the corsairs rubbed their eyes to feel if they were asleep, 
as they saw the whole magnificent navy of Christendom anchor a peak, sailing slowly and majestically away. Were the Christians afraid? Anyhow, no one, not even Barbarossa, could hold the Turks back now. Out they rushed, in hot pursuit, not thinking or caring, save their shrewd captain, whether this were not a feint of Doria's to catch them in the open. Get into line, said Barbarossa to his captains, and do as you see me do. Dragut took the right wing, Salih Reis the left. Early on the 28th, the Christian fleet was discovered at anchor in a foul wind off Santa Maura, thirty miles to the south. Doria was not at all prepared for such prompt pursuit, and eyed with anxiety the long battle line of one hundred and forty galleys, galleots, and brigantines bearing down upon him before the wind. His ships were scattered, for the sails could not keep up with the oars, and Condulmiero's huge Venetian carrack was becalmed off Zuara, a long way behind, and others were in no better plight. Three hours Doria hesitated, and then gave the order to sail north and meet the enemy. Condulmiero was already fiercely engaged, and soon his carrack was a mere unrigged, helmless waterlog, only saved from instant destruction by her immense size and terrific guns, which, well aimed, low on the water to gain the ricochet, did fearful mischief among the attacking galleys. Two galleons were burnt to the water's edge, and their crews took to the boats. A third, Bocanegras, lost her mainmast, and staggered away crippled. What was Doria about? The wind was now in his favor. The enemy was in front. But Doria continued to tack and maneuver at a distance. What he aimed at is uncertain. His colleagues, Gramani and Capello, went on board his flagship and vehemently remonstrated with him, and even implored him to depart and let them fight the battle with their own ships. But in vain. He was bent on tactics when what was needed was pluck, and tactics lost the day. The Corsairs took, it is true, only seven galleys and sailing vessels, but they held the sea. Doria sailed away in the evening for Corfu, and the whole Allied fleet followed in a gale of wind. So, after all, the great duel was never fairly fought between the sea rivals. Barbarossa was willing, but Doria held back. He preferred to show his seamanship instead of his courage. The result was, in effect, a victory a signal victory for the Turks. Two hundred splendid vessels of three great Christian states had fled before an inferior force of Ottomans, and it is no wonder that Sultan Suleiman, when he learnt the news at Yamboli, illuminated the town and added one hundred thousand aspers a year to the revenues of the conqueror. Barbarossa had once more proved to the world that the Turkish fleet was invincible. The flag of Suleiman floated supreme in all the waters of the Mediterranean Sea. End of Part 1, Chapter 9 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista